My Father, I am Jonah, having known what it is to rebel and to flee from the presence of the Lord, having known what it is to be rescued by grace, having known what it is to preach with a hard heart, having known what it is to sit on the banks as I watch what you're doing and to grumble at your grace. But I believe in your sovereign power to overcome hardness and rebellion and a stiff-necked heart. I believe in your sovereign power to overcome self-righteousness and sin. And I ask you to exercise that power this morning. I feel hard. And I suspect that many here do as well. So, Lord, I pray that you would come and and break us, that you may heal us. I pray that as we delve into the the depths of the sea of turmoil and discipline and wrath, Lord, I pray that we would come out on the other side of this message, sitting in the sunshine on the beach of your mercy and reveling in sovereign grace. Saying along with with Jonah, salvation belongs to the Lord. Father, I pray that you would use me, a broken vessel, to pour out the waters of mercy upon your people. I pray that you would rescue today, heal today, encourage, lift up today. I pray that you would save today. I ask this in the name of Christ who is greater than Jonah. Amen. One of the reasons that the book of Jonah resonates uh, with us, with me, so deeply is that we can so, so clearly see our own sin in Jonah's rebellion. Our entire lives, the state and the plight of mankind, is that of fleeing from the presence of of the Lord, unless or until God intervenes by His sovereign grace. It is in our very natures to flee from God. And it has been ever since Genesis 3, ever since the fall of man. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve had succumbed to the serpent's temptation and ate of the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in an ill-conceived attempt to become like God... Their very natures and our very natures, those who would come after them, were fundamentally 
and irrevocably altered. Immediately the image of God in them was marred. Every aspect of their being was corrupted. Their minds and wills now in bondage to sin and bent toward evil. As we look at the page and the text of Genesis chapter 3, we find what was their first impulse of their now wicked and depraved hearts. Genesis 3.8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. It was not their immediate impulse to rush into His presence. It was not their immediate impulse, the desire of their heart to come in repentance and confession and saying, Lord, we have sinned, heal us. The immediate impulse of their heart was to get as far away from the presence of the Holy God as they could. And so they did. They went in and they hid among the trees of the garden and they fashioned for themselves garments and in the futile attempt to cover their shame. Fig leaves cannot cover sin, they found out. And ever since, Adam's descendants have all been in hiding. We come out of the womb and we rush into hiding. Desperately fleeing from the presence of the Lord with whom we want nothing to do. This is why the Apostle Paul could so confidently say in Romans chapter 3 and verse 11 that there is none who seeks for God. No, not one. None. No exceptions. None willingly take their sin into His presence apart from a work of divine grace. Far from seeking God, man in his unregenerate natural state is desperately Fleeing from God. Humanity, like Jonah, flees from the Lord's presence and and willfully takes that precipitous descent that we see Jonah taking. He goes down, 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 down to Joppa, down to the ship, down into the hole. And so do we find ourselves doing the very same thing. Rejecting the Lord's command. Descending into a ship bound for the far country of sin. Descending into the hull of the ship so that we might slip into a sweet slumber and sleep away the guilt that we feel so intensely gnawing within our souls. Until finally in some storm of judgment we're hurled overboard into the sea of God's wrath and we descend into hell, away from the presence of God's mercy and grace, though not from the presence of His wrath and judgment forever. We are Jonah. You are Jonah, chapter 1. And what we desire by God's grace is not to be Jonah, chapter 1, only. We want to find ourselves in Jonah, chapter 2, And we want to find ourselves in Jonah chapter 3. And inevitably, we're going to find ourselves in Jonah chapter 4. 
And what our desire is, is that God would deal with with us with the same patient and tender and sovereign and effectual grace with which He dealt with His prophet. It's the plight of all humanity. It's the direction of all mankind. Down, 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 away, 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 unless or until God intervenes by His sovereign grace. And this is what the Lord does. This is what He did in the Garden of Eden. He did not leave Adam and Eve to hide amongst the trees of the garden. Rather, He called them forth. He called them out. Adam, where are you? And even in the midst of the judicial curses which God brought thundering down upon the serpent and upon the earth and upon mankind, even in the midst of those curses, He gave them a promise. That there is coming from the seed of the woman one who will crush the head of the serpent and will destroy the works of the evil one. Then the Lord God said, get get rid of those fig leaves. Your, your, Your attempts, your merit cannot hide your shame. It cannot mask it. You need garments that I will provide. You need garments that will be made from the shedding of blood. For without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. And so he slaughtered an animal and he covered them with his own skins. And so it is in the life of Jonah as well. He doesn't let Jonah just sail away into the sunset. He finds him. And he tracks him down. And he stops him. And in verse 17 we read, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And at the very moment that Jonah was drowning, as it were, in the sea of God's judgment and and descending into Sheol, into death and into hell itself, God's sovereign grace intervened to rescue his stubborn and disobedient prophet because Jonah was also his chosen and beloved child. And this is the testimony of every single believer. And your story may not be as dramatic as that, but it's your story if you're in Christ. I was running away, and God sought me, found me, and brought me home. If it weren't for the sovereign grace of God intervening in our life and stopping that flight from His presence, we would surely get our wish, which would be a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing for God to give sinners what they want, which would be to spend an eternity away from the presence of the Lord's mercy and kindness. We should rejoice in God's love that will not let us go, that will not have that which our sinful hearts desire. Instead, God graciously and sovereignly and effectually calls to us out of our sin, Adam, where are you? Come to me. And He awakens us to faith in a serpent-crushing Savior. And He changes our hearts and gives us a new affection that now longs to be in His presence and desires to be near Him. And He clothes us in Christ's own righteousness and garments, Revelation 7.14, that are made white in the blood of the Lamb. And He brings us into His presence that our joy may be made full. And Jonah knew this salvation, which is why he ends this prayer, this psalm, with the word salvation is from the Lord. It's as if after he has experienced this rescue, all he can do is just throw up his hands and say, you did this. You did this. 
so vividly portrayed. I wanted a way. I wanted Tarshish and you did this. Is that the way you think of your conversion? Salvation is from the Lord. And indeed it is from beginning to end to the glory of God alone. Is this your story? Can you relate to Adam hiding from the Lord because of the shame of your sin? Staying away from that place where you know His presence dwells, away from His Word, away from His people, away from His church? Can you relate to Jonah fleeing from the Lord's presence, sailing as fast as you can out of rebellion against His command? Did did you hear the Lord walking in the cool of the day? Did you hear Him calling out, Adam, Adam, where, where are you? Can you hear the wind of the Lord howling, howling after you? His storm bearing down upon you, His waves crashing against the hull of your ship? What we need to learn from the book of Jonah is that when the Lord sets His sights of sovereign grace upon us, there is no escape. The Lord always finds what He seeks. And so the call of this book and the call of this text and the call of Jonah chapter 2 to the people this morning is, is stop hiding. You cannot win. Stop fleeing from His presence. Do not run anymore. Do not resist Him who calls. Come out from your hiding place among the trees of the garden. Arise from your slumber in the hole of the ship. And I invite you to come out and to come up on deck this morning and to meet your God. And to deal with Him as He deals with you in truth and in righteousness and in mercy and in grace. Because the Lord would not be seeking you did He not intend to find you and to rescue you and to save you and to bring Him to yourself. So you should hear the Lord calling from Jonah chapter 2 to you saying, Come. Come. But how? How do you come? What is the proper response when you have surrendered to the pursuing grace of God and you come out of hiding and you come up on deck to meet with your Maker? The second chapter of Jonah provides us with an answer. It gives us a lesson in repentance. In fact, the next two chapters, Jonah 2 and Jonah 3, both deal with the issue of repentance so much so that I toyed around with the idea of entitling this message, How to Repent Like a Prophet, and next week's message, How to Repent Like a Pagan. Because in these two chapters, we find two examples of repentance from two radically different perspectives. Jonah 2 contains Jonah's prayer of repentance, providing a picture of the repentance of a believer, a backslider, as it were. One one who has known the ways of the Lord and has been in the midst of His people, who has worshipped the Lord in His holy temple. Jonah 3 contains the story of Nineveh's repentance, and that's the repentance of an outsider. A pagan city full of idols and wickedness and violence. And both are instructive for us. And we'll glean great truths from each. But today's focus is upon the insiders. Namely you. 
Today's focus is upon the church, the visible covenant people of God, you. And I ask you the question that is at the top of your bulletin this morning, are you running from God? Are you in rebellion against His Word? Is there a command which God has given you that you know to be incumbent upon you that you don't like and so you're turned around and you're rebelling against it? Has the Lord's discipline come down upon you like a storm? Are you beginning to see the fact that you're not getting away? His grace and His call will overpower you. If so, if you're ready to repent and to return, Jonah 2 tells us how. How do we come home? How do we come back? Here's the word of the Lord to you this morning. I think we see five steps of repentance in this chapter, and I want to point them out to you. My prayer is that at the end of this message, the Spirit will walk you through these to where you know something of what Jonah must have felt in Jonah 2.10, to be out in the sunshine on the beach of God's grace, ready to renew your obedience and head to Nineveh. Step number one, the first step toward a genuine and lasting repentance is to recognize the imminent danger to your soul. Jonah was in trouble. That much is evident just from a surface reading of this second chapter. I mean, he's thrown overboard in the midst of a violent storm. The churning waves swallow him up, and evidently the current drags him down into the deep, into the black. There is no light. There is no air. There is no heat. There is only icy, swirling, suffocating blackness. Victor Hugo painted a similar picture in his novel, Les Miserables, and he entitled the chapter, The Billows and the Shadow. And it describes the event of a man on a slave galley who's fallen overboard into the sea in the midst of a violent storm. And I want you to listen to his description. See how similar it is to Jonah. And you don't have to be an expert in literature to see how this is is a picture of what's going on inside the soul of his main character, who's Jean Valjean. This is a picture of what's going on in the soul of anybody who is in sin, who is rebelling against the call of God. He writes this, He is in the monstrous deep. There is nothing beneath his feet but unyielding, fleeing element. The waves, torn and and scattered by the wind, close around him hideously. The rolling abyss bears him away. Tatters of water are flying about his head. A populace of waves spit on him. Vague openings half swallow him. Each time he sinks, he glimpses the yawning precipices full of dark. Frightful tendrils unknown seize him, bind his feet, and draw him down. He feels he is becoming the great deep. He is part of the foam. The billows toss him back and forth. He drinks in bitterness. The voracious ocean is eager to devour him. The monster plays with his agony. It is all liquid hatred to him. Hugo goes on for quite a while. 
describing the man's struggle for his life, his rebellion against that inevitable fate that awaits him, until finally he says, around him are darkness, storm, solitude, wild and unconscious tumult, the ceaseless tumbling of the fierce waters. Within him are horror and exhaustion. Beneath him the engulfing abyss, no resting place. He thinks of the shadowy adventures of his lifeless body in the limitless gloom. The biting cold paralyzes him. His hands clutch spasmodically and grasp at nothing. Winds, clouds, whirlwinds, blasts, stars, all useless. What shall he do? He yields to despair. Worn out, he seeks death. He no longer resists. He gives himself up. He abandons the contest. And he's rolled away into the dismal depths of the abyss forever. It's a pretty graphic description of what it's like to drown in the sea, isn't it? And yet I can't help but think that Hugo, who traced biblical allusions all the way through his his novel, had Jonah chapter 2 in mind when he wrote that, because that's what Jonah is describing That's what Jonah is experiencing in the Mediterranean depths. Look at verse 3. He says, You had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers passed over me. Look at verse 5. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. So can we agree that Jonah's sinful rebellion has placed him in great physical peril? I mean, that's obvious, right? But there is a danger greater than physical death that that awaits Jonah, and that's what has him terrified. There is a danger that is far greater than the threat of drowning in death in the midst of the sea. There is an imminent and eternal danger to his soul that he is feeling as he's fading in and out of black. He began this flight from Israel determined to flee from the presence of the Lord. And what he found as he was swirling down in the churning waves and the seaweed is is wrapping around his head is that which he had wanted most, which was to get away from the presence of God, is the absolutely terrifying reality that now confronts him and there is not a thing he can do about it. What horrifies Jonah before his rescue is not the prospect of drowning, but the prospect of damnation. An eternity away from the presence of the Lord. The source of all love and the fount of all goodness. That's the reality that was confronting Jonah. And that reality absolutely broke him in two. The language of eternal punishment is is permeating Jonah's prayer. Verse 3, he says, I cried out from the depth of Sheol. Sheol. What's that? In ancient Hebrew thought, Sheol was the abode of the dead, the prison of the dead where the wicked awaited the final judgment. It was separate from paradise, which was the abode of the righteous dead. He doesn't say, I was opening, I was walking as the blackness is coming over me, even in the midst of all of my rebellion, even in the midst of all of my sin, I saw this light at the end of the tunnel, and at the end of the tunnel there was paradise, and I was drawn to the light. What does he see as he is 
fading out of consciousness. He doesn't see a light, he sees prison bars. Verse 6, I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars were around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Do you capture the image? Jonah sinking, swirling down, seaweed wrapped around him. He can't, he can't get up. Blackness is, is fading in. Light is going away. And what he sees are gates slamming shut. And he can't get out. And he has no expectation of getting out. They're enclosing around me forever. Shield. Bars. The pit forever. I submit to you that it's not the fear of death that provoked his cry of repentance. It's the fear of what he knew lie on the other side of the death for all those who reject the Lord. Namely, judgment and hell. And there's a warning in this text that I think is the beginning of repentance. Especially for the covenant visible people of God. For the church. There's a warning in this text for those who have ears to hear. See, Jonah had rejected the Lord. And in rejecting the Lord, he had rejected the only source of salvation and life. He had turned his back on God and he was departing the faith. And he had reason to be frightened because he was a prophet. And prophets know what is the end of apostasy. And so if you are in the midst of rebellion this morning, if you identify right now with the Jonah of Jonah 1, then you need to hear this. If you're running away, if you're ensnared in sin, if you're fleeing from the presence of the Lord, then you need to hear this warning and recognize the imminent danger your soul is now in. And so I tell you as your pastor who loves you, You must stop using your profession of faith, your baptism, and your semi-religious past as an excuse to continue in sin. Do you not know that it is only those who persevere to the end who will be saved? It's not those who flee to Tarshish. Do you not know that only the holy will inherit eternal life? It's not those who continue in unrepentant sin. Those who profess faith and yet spend their days in rebellion and sin will hear from Jesus on the last day, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. Lord, wasn't I a prophet in Israel? Didn't I preach to your people? In your name, didn't I perform many miracles? And in your name, didn't I cast out demons? I don't know who you are. All of those things meant nothing to him. What matters on the last day is that Jesus knows us savingly and that we know him. If God had not rescued Jonah from his sin, from his rebellion, mark my words, he would have been lost. Having never truly known the God of grace. Whatever his prophetic ministry was, it wasn't what he thought it was. But the Lord did rescue him. Because he was truly a child of God. And the Lord will allow none of his children, none of his chosen ones to perish. But I want you to catch this. Are you with me? There in the swirling waves of rebellion, how could he be sure? 
What evidence did he have that he actually belonged to God? Certainly not his lifestyle. Certainly not the current direction of his heart. Only when he had cried out in repentance and the Lord had heard his voice did the assurance of his status come and joy begin to break into the rebellion. And this is the lesson. In the midst of your rebellion, you can have no real assurance that you are a true believer and not a fraud. That you're a genuine Christian and not a false convert. You can't have that assurance if you're living in unrepentant sin. How can you when John says so clearly in 1 John 3, 9 that the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious? The one who practices sin is born of God. The one who practices unrighteousness is still a child of Satan. Perhaps your conversion was mere emotion and your baptism just the fulfillment of your parents' wishes. The only way to be sure of your status is to repent. Repent. And to return, because that's what children do. So the first step of repentance, when when you're in this storm and the billows of God are passing over you, the first step of repentance is to know that I've got to repent. I've got to return. I am in danger. The bars of Sheol are crashing down around me. And after you have repented, you will look back and you will see. You know, I never was in very real danger. Those were only God's gracious means of bringing me back to him. But on this side of repentance. How can you be sure? You need to recognize the imminent danger that poses that is posed to those who are in the midst of rebellion. It's real. It's biblical, and it's terrifying. The rest of the sermon is a lot more happy. Because the second step of repentance begins our return. And it's a return to the Word of God. When you have recognized the danger in which your sin has placed you, then you need to turn again to the Word to find some truth in which you can anchor your hope of forgiveness. I mean, where, where did Jonah find reason to hope that God would even accept him, that God would even hear his prayer, that God would, would receive him back home after all that he had done, after his flat-out no, and I, I don't want to go to Nineveh, and I'm going to go to Tarshish? Where did, where did Jonah get so presumptuous as to think that God would take him back? Jonah 2.4, that though I am expelled from your sight, nevertheless I will Look again towards your holy temple. I think his hope comes from the Psalms. If I were to read to you Jonah's prayer, but not tell you where it came from, if I was to read to you Jonah 2, but I didn't say turn to Jonah 2, and you were just hearing, you you would think I was reading a psalm. And a careful analysis of this prayer reveals the fact that Jonah's words contain allusions or outright references To Psalms 3, 5, 16, 18, 31, 42, 50, 65, 88, and 120. He's just weaving together a menagerie of of Bible in these 10 verses. Where did it come from? He doesn't have one in front of him. 
See, in the midst of his danger by the power of the Spirit, the psalms of his childhood, the hymns that form the the words of his worship from, from the days of his youth begin to flood his mind. The liturgy of the holy temple begin to come back to him. And he begins to hope. Because the Psalms tell of a God who hears the cries of sinners when they acknowledge their iniquity. And who rescues them in the day of distress. They tell of a God who will not despise the broken and contrite heart. They tell of a God who loves to show mercy. And who saves all who call upon His name. In his distress, Jonah's words, or Jonah's mind went to the word of God and so must ours. There is no hope otherwise. We need to return to the Word of God that we may know that we can return to the God of the Word. Because you'll find in the Word a reason to hope. You will find in it promises of cleansing and forgiveness and restoration. You'll find in it a father who who doesn't chastise the prodigal when he returns, but runs and meets him and embraces him and kisses him and throws a party for him. You'll find a Savior who has taken away all of our sin, bearing it to the cross, who, knew, who, though He knew no sin, became sin for us, that we could be made the righteousness of God in Him. You'll find in it a promise that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And you can say, God is not willing that I should perish, but that I should come to repentance. If I'm still alive and have breath, He will receive me when I repent. You will find in it a promise that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. There's hope. And you have no hope if you don't go back to the Word. You will think, like so many people who are outside the walls, that I'm too far gone. God wouldn't take me back even if I went. You've got to have hope. And the hope is found in the Word. Though I feel as if I've been driven from His sight, I shall again look upon His holy temple. Jonah 2.4 There's a chain of events in Jonah's repentance that I'm trying to point out to you. In other words, these steps are interrelated like, like links in a chain, each one depending and standing upon the last. So, so recognizing the danger of our situation, I've got to repent or else it does not say much about the status that I have before God. Repenting or recognizing the danger, then I return to the Word of God for hope. Having received that hope from the Word that when I call, He will answer, that when I return, He will receive me, then I, I need to, in fact, call and return. I need, to, I need to work out the hope that has been worked in when I return. And so the third step, I would say, is we actually need to repent in prayer. This calling out, this crying out in prayer is seen in two places in Jonah chapter 2. After he's rescued... From drowning by the fish, Jonah begins his prayer saying this, and he's thinking back on what had happened before his rescue because he casts it in the past tense. Listen to the words, I called out of my distress to the Lord and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol, you heard my voice. Calling and crying are vital components of repentance. Then in verses 2 through 6, he remembers what it was like to be swirling and churning in the blackness of the sea and descending into death and judgment. 
And finally, when his, when his lungs held no more air and all that awaited him was that one last intake of water and all would be lost, he would be finished and the gates of Sheol would slam behind him forever. He says this in verse 7. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came into your holy temple. Even from the depths of the Mediterranean Sea, Jonah cries out, he calls out, he prays, and his prayer ascends out of the depths of the sea and ascends into the very temple of the living God who heard and answered and rescued and saved. The Lord brought up Jonah's life from the pit. So at the very center of repentance is communication. It's prayer. It's calling out. It's crying out in confession of sin and a plea for rescue that only the sovereign Lord can give. So recognizing our danger, we return to the word for hope. Having received that hope, we we call out, we repent in prayer. And fourthly, when God has then rescued us, from our sin and delivered our life from the pit when we're safely in the, in the belly of the whale of God's mercy, it's time to give thanks and to rejoice in the grace of God. English Standard Version renders verses 8 through 9 this way. It says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. NIV says they forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I don't know if this is actually what Jonah had in mind, but I like to think about it. Sinclair Ferguson, uh, who's a great Bible teacher and New Testament scholar, he, he wrote a terrific little book on Jonah entitled Man Overboard. And, and he thinks that he sees in, in Jonah's reference in verse 8 to those who regard vain idols a reference to the Ninevites. I don't want to read you what he says here because it's an important point. Ferguson says, but in the depths of his own need, he had seen how compassionate God had been to him. And now, instead of sitting in judgment over these pagans, he now sat beside them under God's judgment. He began to have compassion on them. He saw them as Christ was later to see the multitudes, as sheep without a shepherd. And he confessed, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Jonah, who had formerly despised the ungodly heart, had now seen God's judgments on his own ungodly heart, and he had learned compassion. Now that he too had felt despair and known what it is to be far from God, the Ninevites must have appeared to him in a new light. No longer were they a heathen enemy, but rather immortal men under God's judgment and in need of hearing his warning voice. Jonah had despised God's grace when it was going to come to the Ninevites. But that was before Jonah had been rescued from the very edge of the pit of hell. And that provoked some changes in the heart of man. Because now, at least for a while and at least to a measure, I know Jonah 4 is around the corner. Jonah has some compassion on those who are bowing before lifeless idols that cannot save like his God can and has done. The grace that once repulsed Jonah now causes him to rejoice. And so he ends by saying salvation belongs to the Lord. 
And he grants his salvation to whomever he will. That is his divine right. And he has granted salvation to a self-righteous prophet. And by God, he can grant salvation to sinful pagans. That's what I take him to mean in verses 8 and 9. Who was I to to decide who, who God could and could not save? No, salvation belongs to the Lord. I am but his messenger. Those who have received great grace are free to rejoice in God's great grace for others. The final step in true repentance is to renew our obedience to the will and the word of God. It was Jonah's rebellion against the word of God to go to Nineveh that had set into motion this incredible chain of events. And so therefore, unless Jonah had actually then gone to Nineveh, his repentance would have been incomplete and false, would it not? Jonah had to go to Nineveh. And so we read, verse 10, Then the Lord commanded the fish and had vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So I would tell you that when we're dealing with the issue of repentance, what follows repentance is very important and it speaks to the genuineness of that repentance. Because unless repentance ushers in a new obedience, then it was nothing more than what Paul calls worldly sorrow, a foxhole conversion, a prayer quickly made in the midst of distress and just as quickly forgotten when the distress is past. True repentance brings forth true new obedience. So let's not stop short and think that that repentance is merely a prayer and an emotion. Repentance is a prayer and emotion that ushers in a changed life. So if you're here this morning and you need to repent, if you're Jonah, then number one, you need to recognize the danger that your soul is in. Those who continue in unrepentant sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who die in Tarshish will not find themselves awaking in the promised land. Number two, having recognized the danger that my soul is in and having been provoked to to sorrow and provoked to conviction and provoked to repentance, I need some hope. That God will receive me when I repent. That He'll forgive me when I confess. That hope is found in the Word. So I need to go to the Word to find something on which I can attach my hope. Something to anchor my hope in. Having found that hope, then I need to actually call out. I need to cry out. I need to confess my sin. I need to pray and repent and ask for forgiveness. Having received that forgiveness... That enables me to rejoice in the grace of God that has saved me and that saves others. I need to give thanks, fulfill the vows that I've made. And then that repentance, that chain of events needs to usher in a new obedience or else it calls into question whether there was actually a real chain of events to begin with. Because true repentance ushers in new obedience. 
Now, some of you are here, many of you are here, probably most of you are here, and you say, I'm not Jonah. I was, but I'm not really any, right now. I, I don't, that doesn't resonate with me. I, I'm not, I've not said, I don't care what you say, I'm not going to do it, and I want to get away from you. I, that's not me. When, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle door in Wittenberg, Germany, October 31st, 1517, he was protesting something called the sale of indulgences. Now, indulgences were a, a piece of paper from the Pope where the Pope, at, acting as the vicar or the high priest of Christ, was able to grant forgiveness of sins for the right price. And Luther was absolutely scandalized when this was happening in, in his parish in Germany. His problem with the, ideal of indul- with the idea of indulgences was twofold. On the one hand, he knew it was false grace. In other words, a piece of paper from the Pope in Rome has absolutely no power whatsoever to remit sin. On the other hand, he saw it as cheap grace. Or maybe not so cheap grace. Because for the right price, somebody could actually purchase what amounted to as a license to sin. And Luther rightly recognized that only God can forgive, and God only forgives the sins of those who genuinely repent. And purchasing forgiveness is not repentance. And so he began these 95 theses with this first overarching statement. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And he's right. So a sermon on repentance is relevant not just to those who are currently in the midst of rebellion, but, but to those who have already come back, to those like, like me, like you, like, like every true believer are constantly day by day wrestling with, with the sins of the flesh and indwelling iniquity that still has such a stranglehold on our heart. Because our lives are to consist of a practice of daily repentance. These probably ought to be steps that I walk through on a regular basis. A continual return to the presence of the Lord from my hiding place among the trees of the garden and into the light of God's cleansing presence. So whether, whether you're Jonah in Jonah chapter 1 fleeing from the presence of the Lord on a ship bound to Tarshish, or whether you're Jonah sitting on the east bank of the Tigris in Jonah chapter 4 grumbling about something God did, the call of Jonah 2 is repent, and the promises is that those who repent are cleansed and forgiven and restored and received back in full and glorious and complete grace. So wherever you find yourself this morning, the invitation is the same. You should come out. You should come up. You should come home. You should come. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, It is your spirit that chases down rebels. It is your spirit that convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so I ask your spirit to do just that. While we close in worship and close with song, while we close in prayer and response to the word of God, I pray that your spirit would work with every individual at the point of their need, drawing them home, revealing to them sin, promising whispers of grace that if we come, you will receive. If we repent, you will forgive. If we confess, you will cleanse. Bring your people home.
We ask this in Jesus' name.